Today may feel a little bit different. I'm, I'm sort of, we'll see how it goes. I'm taking a bit of a risk in, in doing a deep dive down this one, one book, uh, which I think is, which I hope is helpful. I found it helpful myself, so hopefully it's helpful for you. Uh, but we are uh, in the doctrine of the person of Christ. Who is Jesus? Uh, how are we to understand him? How has the church come to understand him? Why is it important? Uh, and next week we will uh, get into the work of Christ. So one, one sort of traditional way to, d to describe uh, the doctrine of Christ is sort of two main categories, the person and the work. And last week I mentioned how it's an artificial separation because you can't really know the one without the other. Meaning we only really know who Jesus is because of what he has done, right? Especially on the cross. Uh, but of course we can't really understand what he has accomplished on the cross if we also don't know who he is. Uh, if he's not God with us, his work on the cross is not going to be the same. So uh, just sort of keeping that in front of us. But we're going to finish up today on the person of Christ. Hopefully it will give us much occasion, not just to think, but to worship uh, and give praise to God. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Lord, we do praise you that you, uh, to you belongs salvation and you have brought us uh, with a new day, a new morning uh, to gather as your people. And we do pray that you would open our hearts to hear, uh, hear the word, hear uh, the teaching that you have uh, revealed to us by your spirit and in the church. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I wanted to just uh, review a bit from last week. Um, so we got into, I started, if you remember, I started on sort of the big heresies of the early church. Um, all of the, the sort of wrong ways Christians came to, to understand Christ. Uh, a lot of times in church history, uh, we... We sort of believe something or proclaim something, and then someone says, well, does it mean this? And we'll say, no, 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 it's not that. It's not that either. It's this. So uh, that's a little bit of what we did last week. And so we're starting now on where we landed, which I, we did mention some last week, but it's never, uh, uh, you can't say some of this stuff enough. So uh, the Nicene Creed the section on Jesus Christ, very careful, important language. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. Westminster uh, doesn't quote the full Nicene Creed, unfortunately, but it does um, virtually quote it in, in a lot of its essentials. And so that's what I put there. Um, 
the bold part is, uh, is related to some of those heresies that we mentioned last week. So, two whole, perfect, distinct natures, the Godhead and the man, and were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Does anybody remember why it's important that they're not composed or confused together, the natures? Just seeing if anyone's awake or remembering last week. If you remember, some of the, at first it's sort of like, is Jesus really human? How could he be really human to do all this? Yeah, he can't really be a human substitute. And then it's like, well, maybe then he's not really God. Like, maybe he's just a really special human. And there's all sorts of problems with that. But then what about, how can he be both human and divine? In one. And so maybe it makes more sense to say his soul or his mind is divine and his body is human. That would be more reasonable. But the church was like, no, no, no. That's, that's not what we believe when we proclaim Christ has saved us. Because if he didn't assume all of our human nature, then he didn't save it. He didn't heal it, right? And so similar there. This, it's why they're not, they didn't, they didn't come, in, it's not like a mixture where they created some third monster-like thing. Uh, other, in that case, he wouldn't re, be really truly God or truly human. He'd be something else, some kind of weird fusion. All right, um, so that's part of what's going on there. And key phrases here, uh, again, some of this is review. The, the million-dollar word there, homoousios, came down to us through a lot of debate, really is of one being, one essence with the Father. Not just like the Father. He's not just really, 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 really close to the Father. He is of one being or essence. Um, and there's plenty of passages we could look at. Um, yeah. Totally knows and understands the Father, and totally knows and understands us. Yeah, both of those. It's like he's, he's holding on to both. And, and a lot of this, I realize that we haven't actually looked at a lot of Scripture, so we can if there's certain passages you want to look at. But a lot of this is looking at Scripture, realizing what the first Christians were doing when they worshipped God and our Lord Jesus Christ, and saying, how can that make sense? How can that be legit? So when you read passages like John 1 or Philippians 2 or the end of Matthew, the Great Commission, they worship Jesus, even though some doubt it. Uh, how can that be the case? if they're good monotheistic Jews. So a lot of this is just trying to sort of understand beneath what we already know to be true, right? So it's, it's coming out of faith. It's coming out of this is what we already believe. Jesus is Lord. He saves. 
et cetera, et cetera. How can that be the case? So the, the big phrase in church history, faith seeking understanding, that's really what is happening here. It's not starting from doubt, it's actually starting from belief and saying, Jesus is Lord, he saves, how could that be? And how can we understand it more? How can we explain it in a better way or in these new cultural fads that are happening? Okay? Um, any questions? It's all still sort of review, but we're still on page 58. Make sure you have pages 58, 59 through 62, because our printer has not been reliable. <clears throat> Any, any passage of scripture you guys would want to look at real quick? Or, yeah, go ahead, Alex. That's <laughs> right. We're, we're going to spend a lot of time in the weeds so, today. Yeah, he didn't have a physical body before the creation of the world. So, and we're, we'll get into that a little bit because there are some important implications. But uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, does not takes on a body at the incarnation. Takes on a body, so didn't have one before. So is eternally begotten from the Father. They're one God from all eternity: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Always Trinity just wasn't necessarily revealed in the same clarity from Genesis to Revelation. And then the incarnation is when he takes on a body that he does not dispose of. Most of this is crazy to think, but yeah. That would be a heresy, I'd say, yeah. Because then he's not human. Uh, and even the idea of a remote control, I think, is a modern invention. They didn't have that idea until we had machines, right? So. <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of, not really, kind of. <laughs> You're asking about uh, the extra Calvinisticum, is what you're asking about. And we're not going to get into that. Which, which logic? I'm not sure what you're asking exactly. Yeah. Because, well, maybe we, should, maybe we should see where we're going to go, but he, um, he never stopped being God. Spatial, though, spatial terms when it comes to God are often not helpful. Because heaven, uh, I don't know, if we, or even time. I'm not sure what we want to do here. But heaven is not up there. It's not like you go past the moon, a couple galaxies, and you've reached heaven. It's more of a fourth dimension. 
or the upside down. We'll see. We'll see if, if what comes. We'll see if what comes comes later helps us. But uh, all right, top of fifty nine. I think this is a good encapsulation uh, from a theologian. If in Jesus Christ humans do not encounter God directly, then they cannot confidently embrace God's reconciling love. Furthermore, worrying that God hides behind an emissary, humans treat salvation as reaching toward God via this quasi-divine intermediary instead of receiving divine grace. So he needs what, what, what Jesus himself claims, right? I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Ridiculously bold claims. But it leads to all of this confidence and assurance that the New Testament preaching is full of, which is you can know you have heard from God if you have heard from Jesus. It's not just God sending out someone as a representative, because then he would be merely a prophet. Yes, he is a prophet, but he's the greatest and true prophet, right? Like the better... Yeah. We receive grace. Yes. Whereas that wouldn't be the case if Christ was just a representative. A representative or some kind of quasi-divine, semi-divine. It, it would seem like, well, can we really be that confident that we've heard from God? Or is there some other mysterious thing behind this representative that he hasn't told us? Because remember, the, in the fullness of time... God became human. So it's like this ultimate climax has taken place. But also in the point, he was, you know, suffering before the foundation of the world. That just blows my mind, the whole story. And I was just listening to this um, song by Andrew Peterson that says, um, his dying flesh reposed in hope. Because he totally mm. was his father, right? Mm. To have such confidence in the Father in the midst of truly human suffering and sin and death. But also for us. For us. For us, absolutely. All right. Um, I'm gonna, let's, let's try to move on. Um, let me give a caveat to the rest of our class. If this seems absurdly abstract and, and hard to understand, come back next week. It's not always going to be like this. Okay? Uh, so I'm just, I want to sort of press into some of these weeds questions because I do see the benefit. But I recognize this is, this could be a lot. Um, all right, so trying to, trying to just press in a little bit deeper on who is Jesus. So on God being unchangeable, yet loving, or the foundations for a Christian theodicy and incarnation. Theodicy meaning how do you defend what happens in the world in light of God. Uh, 
the person of Christ is not an amalgam of two natures. We've already said this, but this is just sort of setting the stage where we're going to go. But rather is the eternal divine person of the Son who has taken a human nature into personal union. All right. So how do these, how does the Son of God relate to his human nature? What is sometimes called the communication of idioms. Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature, sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So the rest of this class is going to try to understand what that means and why it's important. Okay? Because we ultimately want to say, and not just we want to, we think scripture says and declares, right? He is fully God, and he took on a human body. Okay, so the rest is going to be coming from this book called Does God Suffer by Thomas Wynandy um, that I think is fully orthodox and wonderfully helpful. So I'm going to try to just walk us through, and feel free to jump in if something doesn't make sense. Does God really relate to us? So, th so there's, this is sort of like a long ladder, and we're going to end up with hopefully better understanding Christ. So first, just how does capital G God actually relate to us? As creator, he is in no way limited. The term creator specifies both the relationship between Yahweh. Yahweh, he, he uses Yahweh because he's an academic. It, it's like the current academic way to refer to God in the Old Testament. Uh, both the relationship between Yahweh and his creation and simultaneously his radical distinctiveness from creation is the very otherness of God as creator which allows him to be so close and intimate. Let me read the next part. Does God need to be so transcendent and holy? The whole significance of Yahweh's presence and activity expressed in his love, care, and compassion is predicated precisely on the truth that it is actually God in his holy otherness as God who is present and active. To make God less than holy other in order to promote or protect his presence and activity is to undermine the import, very importance of his presence and activity. If it is not the holy other God who is acting in time and history and forming personal relationships with his people, then the whole significance of this activity in these relationships is lost. So part of what he's trying to address is, maybe you've heard it in popular circles, it's certainly popular in, in academic circles. Maybe God isn't totally immutable and unchangeable and that far above us. Because how could he then actually have any compassion or real relationship to us? And his point is, you've totally thrown the baby out with the bathwater. It's precisely because he is not like us that he can then become intimate with us. There's no... We don't compete on the same level. And this, I think, is something of what you're, you were asking, Alex, whether you know it or not. God and humanity are not like one another, which means they don't compete for the same space. 
so you can have, and we're going to see ultimately why this is actually amazing for sanctification. We can say, God feeds us through the humans who baked the bread. It's not either or. Because they're not like the other. Because if they were like the other, then it's either God did it or humanity did it. Welcome back, Catherine. Good to see you. Hallelujah. Okay? So, what about God seeming to change his mind? So, again, we're thinking some of this is Old Testament stuff. The very language that is used, being sorry, relenting, repenting, changing of mind. You think of like around the Noah story. You think of making Saul king. Seeks to express Yahweh's unswerving and unalterable love, which is expressed in his compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. And equally that he is adamant in his demand for goodness and justice. Yahweh then is sorry that he appointed Saul first king of Israel, not just because Saul had changed, but, be, but he is equally sorry because he as God has not changed. The sorrow, God's sorrow, is an expression of the fact that the glory of Israel will not recant or change his mind for, that's a misprint, his is not, a, I think it's his, for his is not a mortal that he should change it. He is not a mortal. That should read he. He is not a mortal that he should change his mind. The all-holy God consistently demands righteousness, and this very consistency is expressed in his sorrow. Does that make any sense to anyone? So when he says, I am sorry that I have appointed Saul... We don't have to read that as sort of some kind of simple human language of, well, didn't know this was going to happen. Wish I saw this one coming. Right? He's, he's unchangeable in his love and his commitment to righteousness and justice. And precisely because of that, he is sorry for what Saul has done. That's all right if it's crickets. It's been, it was crickets for me for a long time. I can see the difference in the song. Sorry because I didn't know. Right. This is like, you know, where a farmer has to do it. Right. Because they are committed to its, its care. Right. So then this is all kind of setting up how can God really have compassion? Yeah. Could the same argument be made for when he talks to Moses and says, sorry about choosing Israel. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So it's it's because he is so committed to who he, who he is, which is love and glory and righteousness, that he is full of grief when Israel 
makes the golden calf. So is he just saying those words to Moses to test Moses? Because it sounds like it's slightly different because now he's going to choose Moses right. to make Moses' incarnation instead. Right. Uh, it could be a bit of testing Moses. It could be a bit of revealing more of who he is to Moses and to to us, his people. Yeah. But he really is sorrowful. It's not a. It's not an act. Well, that makes sense. He really. He really can have compassion. Because he really is all loving, and is unchanging in that love. That's sort of. What he's trying to say. Yes. Moses appeals to who God is, not to who Israel is. Yeah, Israel is full of sin, so Moses knows he can't. He can't mitigate that. So, and I'm realizing for those who are coming in late, this is, I already gave a caveat that this may not make any sense, but too bad. All right. Can God have compassion if he doesn't change? This is another big, especially trendy thing in theological circles. How can he really have compassion for his people if he doesn't change at all? Because someone who doesn't change sounds like that they're just a rock without any feeling at all. And it's precisely the opposite with God. So don't think of a rock as far as unfeeling. Think of one, as we're going to see, who is perfectly full of compassion all the time. So it's not perfectly static. Perfectly dynamic. Perfect. Well, we're going to see. God is for Irenaeus. Irenaeus, good guy, second century, amazing church father. Total sympathy and total love, precisely because his mercy and love are not predicated of a changeable being. Sorry, another misprint. Predicated, meaning God doesn't change. For God to be impassable, impassable means uh, does not uh, suffer does not undergo change, immutable, is not to deny love and compassion of him, but to establish in his unchangeably perfect being a love that is absolutely and utterly passionate. And then again, eternally, God is immutably, holy moly, there's so many misprints. I did read this. Over, I thought. Eternally, God is immutably and impassably adapted to every situation and circumstance. That's amazing, right? Oh, this is amazing. Not because his love is indifferent and unresponsive. Not because he doesn't care, but precisely the opposite. Because his love with all its facets is fully in action. And so he is supremely and utterly responsive to every situation and circumstance. He is not, when we say God is unchangeable or doesn't suffer, we're not saying he's totally without feeling. We're kind of saying the opposite. He's not as tangible as 
Right. Right. So would it be better to like maybe just because compassion is just such a different term? Maybe like perfectly empathetic would be better. Yeah. Compassion. Yeah. Perfectly empathetic. Perfect. He's so able to understand and relate, especially then once we get to the incarnation, of our pain and suffering. I mean, because you think about the, uh, the funeral for the, the young man where Jesus wept with, yeah. with his mother. Yeah. Like perfect empathy. That's right. That's right. Jesus didn't go to Lazarus' tomb and say, stop crying, it's no big deal. And the, the earlier stuff was sort of meant to remind us that we don't have to try and bring God down to our level to get him to relate to us. We actually want him to be perfectly transcendent and holy, unlike us. Okay? So then, you thought that was hard. We haven't even get started. So then, does God suffer? very hard question to answer but I think the church's answer throughout orthodoxy has said no with a lot of qualifications no God in himself as God does not suffer since God does not suffer his love becomes absolutely free in its expression and supremely pure in its purpose. If God did suffer, it would mean that God would need not only to alleviate the suffering of others, but also his own. And thus there would be an inbuilt self-interest in God's love and consolation. However, since God does not suffer, his care for those who do suffer is freely given and not evoked by some need on his part. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, it's not saying he doesn't understand it. Right. Are you talking about like suffering in his being? Exactly. Exactly. In in his being. Well, in this case, it's, does God in himself change? Does suffering change? Suffering, suffering is something happening to us that does something to us. It changes us, right? How can you suffer without, of course, it does things to us. Yeah. But then he delights in us. Isn't that changing? I, this is where you're Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. What is the difference between that and Yes, which leads us perfectly to the next quote. So what happens in the incarnation? All right. It is truly the Son of God who truly is man and so suffers truly as man. If the Son of God changed in becoming man, it would no longer be the Son of God who is man. Meaning, 
God in God's self did not change. Who is it who truly experiences the authentic, genuine, and undiminished reality of human suffering? None other than the divine Son of God. He who is one in being, homo with the Father. What is the manner in which he experiences the reality of human suffering? As man, as a human. It's actually the Son of God who lives a comprehensive human life. And so it is the Son who, as man, experiences all facets of this human life, including suffering and death. It's not saying, it's saying that the Son of God wept humanly. Yeah, he absolutely... Yeah, I mean, I'm God, you know, being a spirit doesn't weep, but that, that feeling pain, you know, in your emotional sense, are we saying God doesn't feel that when he looks at the world? No, we're not quite saying that, I don't think. Well, remember what Westminster chapter 2 says. It says things like God is without parts, passions, or something else. Right? He feels, but it's not, it's not like it's... Right. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't Superman. He was completely capable of sin, and he just didn't. So, I mean, to say that, you know, it's just like, oh, he wasn't well, suffering the way that he suffered. Well, it's not saying that Jesus. It's not. We're, yeah, we're not talking about Jesus. I'm not saying Jesus didn't suffer. Right, 
Nobody would say that. Yeah. The question is, what do we mean when we say Jesus suffered? Yeah. We want him to suffer humanly. Right. I get that. We want him to die a human death, or else his death doesn't save us. So I guess, so he learned obedience, he suffering, he learned, you That's okay. I mean, Try it. Christ is in the same substance as God. Yep. Yep. Right. What kind of Gnosticism is this? <laughs> We're saying that something about taking on flesh made God experience something that the Father doesn't. I mean, I just he suffered human. He suffered human suffering. He didn't suffer divine suffering. All right. All I'm saying is, try, try to receive the teaching of the historic church in a way that it may help us. Okay? So let me try to read the rest of this. And if you don't understand it, that's perfectly fine. Well, let's see if we can understand like some important qualifications. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. So what does it mean to say that God suffered? He who is impassable as God is actually passable as man. The impassable suffered, which sounds contradictory. The one who can't suffer suffered. That is what we say. We just have to know what we mean by that. To say in accordance with Cyril and the Christian tradition, it's not to be incoherent, but to state the very heart of the incarnational mystery. First, the term impassable guarantees that it is actually God in all his holy transcendent otherness as God, who suffers. So we're still saying that. And not God in some mitigated or semi-divine state. He really is God in his incarnation. Second person of the Trinity. The fact that God does not lose his holy transcendent and passable otherness in so suffering enhances to the extreme the import of the suffering, for it means that the Son, who is incapable of suffering as the holy other God by himself, is precisely the same one who is actually suffering as man. It is at this juncture that those who advocate a suffering God miss the logic, and so the heart of the communication of idioms. The communication of idioms, secondly, equally ensures that it is truly human suffering that the Son of God experiences and endures. All right, we're almost done, so hang in there, or you can just forget it all and it'll be fine. Even if one did allow the Son of God to suffer in his divine nature, this would negate the very thing one wanted to preserve and cultivate. For if the Son of God experienced suffering in his divine nature, he would no longer be experiencing human suffering in an authentic and genuine human manner. Instead, he would ex be experiencing, quote, human suffering in a divine manner, which would then be neither genuinely nor authentically human. 
If the Son of God experienced suffering in his divine nature, then it would be God suffering as God in a man. Then he's, he, We're going to start trying to understand the difference between it's not just God inserted into a human, it's God as a human. But the incarnation which demands that the Son of God actually exists as a man and not just dwells in a man, equally demands that the Son of God suffers as a man and not just suffers divinely in a man. Within the incarnation, the Son of God never does anything as God alone, he should have said. It's not just God with a mask on. It's always God as human. If he did, he would be acting as God in a man. This the incarnation will never permit. All that Jesus did as the Son of God was done as a human, whether it was eating carrots or raising someone from the dead. He may have raised Lazarus from the dead by his divine power or better by the Holy Spirit, but it was nonetheless as man that he did so. If the Son of God as God were deprived of some good which would cause him to suffer as God, it, it would mean that he is actually no longer God. Because God is the one who is totally immutable and wholly other. Strange as it may seem, but not paradoxically, one must maintain the unchangeable impassibility of the Son of God as God in order to guarantee that it is actually the divine Son of God one in being with the Father who truly suffers as man. As man, the Son of God was deprived, as we are we, of human goods, which did cause him, like us, to suffer. Even if we were to suppose the impossible situation that in Christ God suffers as God in his divine nature, his suffering would then have little to do with us, for we do not suffer as God, but as humans. Okay. In terms of like applying like game theory to God's nature. Okay. So in terms of he has to be this because he can't be this. Um, so I I would caution I would caution your brazenness <laughs> because I understand. This is not some random blog I, I throwing I understand. I just think that trying to apply our under our, our understanding to God's nature sort of deprives As a human. Okay. He didn't stop being human. Correct. Yeah, he did it as a human. I think I think it's all he's trying to say is he did this as a human. But he wasn't always human. Definitely. moment he was not 
I yeah, I don't think that's what he's trying to say. I, that's, that's what I'm saying is that I don't understand in the context of scripture. And this could be just something that we just, we just don't understand. Sure. But I, I think it's trying to appreciate. It's, tr it's trying to do the opposite of what you think it's trying to do, which maybe it doesn't accomplish that. But it is trying to appreciate, well, God has actually revealed himself in a certain way as someone who does not have thoughts like us, is not like us, and does not change. He says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is not some newfangled idea. No, right? I, I think so if that is God, and he took on, and he, yeah, yeah, and he became human, what does that mean? Anthony, did you want to say something? Sure. 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 Yeah. Yes. Which came from him, ironically. Yeah. So it's not trying to dispel the mystery. Absolutely. It's not trying to make, make this rational. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can say God is unbelievable. We can say God is unbelievably patient because he does not change in his commitment to his own glory or to us. It, it just depends what you mean. Yeah, of course he's long-suffering. He, he's more long-suffering than we can even imagine. But it's not because he's thrown off and is changing all the time. Well, What's going to happen now? So maybe this is where I'm moving forward what you're saying. That's, see, that, that's where I would have to Yeah. Um, he's he's unbelievably long-suffering. <laughs> yeah. He's unbelievably patient. And we see his patience with sin in the incarnation and cross, such that he is willing to totally take the punishment of human sin on himself. He didn't take the punishment of divine sin, right? God didn't sin. He didn't have anything to repent of. He took the punishment of human sin as God. I think that's all it's trying to say. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's just getting caught up in the long language, and I'm sorry. It was sort of a... It was sort of a... a it was thrown out a lot there. But it's trying, it's trying to understand the magnificence of the incarnation and the cross to say that it really is God who is eternally good and loving who can perfectly identify with us as humans. Take our place. Love us without anything that will stop that. He's not going to be surprised, right? He's not going to be thrown off. 
and he has hallelujah, he has communicated that in human form and died in a human place. And we want God, who is truly God, to do that. And if you don't get it, that's totally fine. Because this is like the result of, you know, a couple millennia of trying to understand this. Sure. So, I mean, it's, but I, I, I just think that, you know, trying to explain it in Western philosophical terms is not helpful. <laughs> well, we have to explain it, don't I we? I understand, but I mean, I just, I just, I think you create problems. Certainly, we have to be able to explain it in every language imaginable. So, we wouldn't want to say we could not do that. Yeah. He gave us the truth in human form because that's the only way we're going to receive it. Right? If we if we try to touch Sinai we'll be executed. So we don't experience God as God experiences himself. We experience God as humans. But in the craziness of the incarnation, he has brought humanity intimately into God. All right. I would encourage all of us to take a deep breath and to not let this affect what's going to begin in about 10 minutes, which is really what this is all about, which is the worship of the Lord. Lord, we do praise you that you have done uh, wonderfully unspeakable acts that are uh, perfect in their love and goodness and truth. And we pray that we would uh, be able to give you the glory that you deserve. We thank you that you have given us another Lord's Day, and we pray uh, for your presence, the truly divine presence in our midst, Lord, that we would come to know and to smell like and to, to uh, act like Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.